Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And uh, we're moving to verse, the last half of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. Uh, it says, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And so far we have seen uh, the first two groups of the disciples who were part of the twelve. And now we turn to the third group of four. Uh, the first three men in this group are the least known of the twelve. Uh, most of what we know about them is inferred uh, by their names or descriptive identities or is gathered from church tradition. Uh, except for one short question posed to Jesus by Thaddeus, the Bible tells us nothing about these three guys' individual characters, personalities, abilities, or accomplishments, either during their three years of training under Jesus or during their ministry in the early church. Uh, and thus the tendency is to sort of figure them to be second-class apostles, uh, sort of hangers-on, when the truth is that they made the same commitment that Peter and everyone else made. Uh, they crossed the line in utter, total obedience to Christ. Now, as we've been going along, we've been asking the question, what kind of people does God use in his service? When Jesus went out to pick out men to be his disciples who would become his apostles, what kind of guys did he pick? Uh, we've seen that the Lord can basically take any kind of raw material at all and use it for the advancement of his glorious eternal kingdom. And we'll see that continue as we look at the first three men in this final group. So let's begin with James, the son of Alphaeus. There is a line from Sirach 44.1 in the Apocrypha, which became the title of a very famous book about tenant farmers during the Great Depression, which says, let us now praise famous men. Uh, well, if we were to do that, James, the son of Alphaeus, would not be on the list. Uh, he would never be in a listing of who's who. He would never be asked to write a forward to a book or to lead in prayer at a convention. In fact, he probably wouldn't even be invited to be part of a panel discussion by some of the disciples to share their experiences with Jesus. Uh, if you ask most people, even those who claim to be Christians, who James, the son of Alphaeus, was, most of them would have absolutely no idea. Uh, do you know anything that the Bible says about him? It says, it says absolutely nothing about him. I mean, other than his name. I mean, yeah. Uh, but he had a famous name. I guess he probably suffered because there was James, the son of Zebedee, who was in the group, who was sort of a bull in a china shop kind of guy. Um, and then there was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became the primary pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, he never wrote anything in the Bible, never said anything recorded in the Bible, never asked anything recorded in the Bible, and never did anything recorded in the Bible. Uh, in Mark 15:40, he is called James the Less. Uh, 
the word there is this word, mikros, uh, from uh, which means little. We obviously get our word micro from this word. Uh, it means uh, little in the sense of being small or short or younger or unimportant. Uh, so, so it could be that uh, it meant he was a small guy, short in stature. Uh, if he was older than James, the son of Zebedee, that would be a way to distinguish the two of them. Or it could be that he was younger than James, the son of Zebedee. You know, if he was older but shorter, they could use that. If he was younger, he could use that. Uh, or it could mean that he had much less influence than Big James, you know, the, the son of thunder. Uh, that is, a, that he was much milder, less confrontational than the son of Zebedee. Or it could have meant all three, uh, that he was short and small, younger than the other James, and uh, as well as having a personality that was far less brash and bold than James, the son of Zebedee. Personally, I'm inclined to think it was probably at least two of those things, that he was both a small, short guy who was younger than the other James, but it could have well been all three. Now here, here's one interesting speculation about him. Look over at Mark 2.14 for a moment. Mark 2.14. It says, as he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, now watch this, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow up, and he got up and followed him. Now who was Levi? Matthew. Matthew. And who was his father? Alphaeus. So James and Matthew may have been brothers. That's a possibility. Some theologians don't buy that idea, though, because the other sets of brothers and the disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, uh, are clearly distinguished as brothers, and they're always grouped together. Whereas Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, are in two separate groups of the disciples, and it never ever says that they are brothers. Uh, they may have just been two unrelated men who had fathers by the same name. Uh, so we can't state with certainty that they were brothers, but at the same time, that possibility does exist. Uh, there's another interesting possibility. In John 19.25, we're told that one of the women standing in front of Jesus' cross was Mary, the wife of Clopas. Well, the name Clopas happens to be a variant of Alphaeus. Uh, so it's possible that Mary was James' mother. Uh, she was also one of the women who went to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection and then tried unsuccessfully to persuade the apostles that Jesus had risen. So it's possible that Levi, Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, were brothers and that their mother was Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, we've already seen that when Jesus picked his followers, he picked two other sets of brothers. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if he picked a third set of brothers, Matthew and James the less. But it, it would make, and it would make sense to me that after his brother and mother saw the change that Jesus made in Matthew's life, they would have turned to him in faith and began following him. Uh, we can't be certain of those things. They're, they're interesting all the same. But what I am certain of 
is that it's encouraging that the Lord doesn't depend on big, bold, in-your-face superstars. Yeah, all my adult Christian life, I have heard people say, oh, you know, if only this outstanding athlete or this incredible musician would become a Christian, just think how the Lord could use them to bring many to Christ. Uh, the most recent time I heard was just last year when Kanye West was claiming to have become a Christian, a claim which was very quickly proven to be incorrect. Uh, but you know what? You know, it's fine to pray for the salvation of your favorite athlete or some famous musician. Uh, that's a great thing to pray. I, I'd like to see Kanye West become a genuine Christian. But, folks, the kingdom of God will not advance any faster with him leading the parade than anyone else. Uh, because God does not depend on that. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, will still sit on a throne reigning over one of the tribes of Israel in the millennium. And do you know what you know about him? You don't know anything about him uh, other than the possibilities that I shared with you. Uh, so what's the point? The point is that Christ is the focus, not James. Uh, the Bible doesn't say a thing about his occupation, his personality, or anything else. His distinguish, distinguishing characteristic is obscurity. Uh, and I think it's kind of neat that Jesus picked a man who is utterly obscure. Uh, he's the most obscure of all of the disciples. He didn't, there's no recording that he, of any questions he asked, anything he said. We just don't know anything about him. Uh, it may be that he was just obedient all the time. There wasn't a lot to say about that. But the Lord uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. They are the silent unknown soldiers in the Lord's army. And the apostles demonstrate to us that it, it is never really the worker who is the issue in the work of the kingdom. Uh, it's never the worker. That's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 7. Listen to what he said. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So the worker is nothing. It's all about God. Uh, so that's why the New Testament never even focuses on these guys. I mean, you can't find a single place that says, now you need to study these 12 guys who Jesus chose. You should really understand their ministry style and methods and means. No, the Bible doesn't pick out the best preacher among them and give you his homiletic method. Um, the Bible doesn't point out the one who was the best healer or the one who had the most engaging style when he presented the gospel. Uh, it doesn't even deal with many of them. Uh, the only time the apostles are ever mentioned in Scripture is when they interact with Christ for a specific purpose, and he is always the focus. There's never a diversion to anything else. You don't have any record of the ministerial career of any of the 12 because they're not the issue. Uh, the human instrument is immaterial to God. I mean, he can use Balaam's donkey if he wants to. Uh, he can make rocks cry out if he wants to. 
Uh, human instrument is not the issue. Uh, you don't have to be a genius intellectually or classified as gifted. Uh, that's not the issue. The Bible never deals with those kind of things. The focus is always on Jesus Christ, and the disciples just go in and out of the picture, and when they do, they usually ask dumb questions. You may have heard this story, but I think it fits, so let me add it in. When, Leo, when Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous picture of the Last Supper, which I'm sure you all remember, uh, he finally thought he had finished the picture. And he was seeking an honest review from a close friend, and so he invited this man to come in and look at the work and give him his honest evaluation. And the friend looked the painting over and then said, I have to tell you, it's a beautiful picture, but that cup in Jesus' hand is especially beautiful. It's magnificent with all those jewels on a gold cup. It truly is a cup worthy of touching the lips of Jesus. And da Vinci showed his friend the door and then promptly painted over and removed the cup from the picture. And later, when his friend saw the altered painting, uh, he asked da Vinci why he removed such an elegant part of the picture, to which da Vinci responded, I failed because I wanted you to see Christ. You saw a cup. Nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. Uh, you know, it's wonderful to be a vessel, fit for the master's use, but that's not what the focus is. Uh, I think one of the great tragedies of Western Christianity in our time and culture is that we see the cups. We don't see Christ. Uh, we are personality-oriented. We study the methods and the means of men rather than experiencing the power of God. And I think part of the impotence in the church is because of this Christian superstar mentality. I mean, when is the last time that you went to a Bible conference that featured pastors, speakers, who were pastors from small churches of, say, 200 people? Yeah. Uh, from some out-of-the-way place and not much else who faithfully labor in that little church and teach the word with power and truth. Now, most of the conferences tend to feature preachers who have churches of 5,000 or more and big fancy buildings and lots of exciting programs because our culture has come to equate success with size and style and showmanship. That's not the issue. Christ is the issue. So the Lord uses an obscure little fellow named James the Less, an unknown, unsung hero of the faith who goes quietly unnoticed throughout the gospel narrative. And yet he was, no doubt, a powerful preacher with a deep, deep commitment who was used by God. Folks, never ever evaluate your own ministry by the standards of this world or this culture. Don't think, well, you know, all I do is open the door for people and welcome them on Sunday evenings. That's no big deal. I'm, I'm like an unpaid Walmart greeter. You know, in fact, my role isn't even as important as those who do it on Sunday mornings. Or, well, I just listen to the kids recite their verses in Awana on Wednesday nights. What is that to God? Or, I'm just a helper in the Dorcas ministry. I can't sew... So I just cut out fabric for the ones who do the work. Does that even count as serving the Lord? You know, 
And there are countless other things you could say to demean your service to God. Don't do that. Uh, the issue is faithfully serving him to the best of your abilities, regardless of how obscure and how insignificant uh, it seems that your service may be. It, it may be simply giving others an encouraging phone call once a month in our shepherding ministry. Uh, it might be helping make coffee on Sunday mornings at the coffee bar in the lobby. Uh, it might be standing at the welcome center and welcoming newcomers to the church and giving them information about the church. It might be changing dirty diapers and consoling crying babies once a month in the nursery. It might be serving on the church safety team on Sunday mornings to provide security and first aid care to the congregation. There are many ways to serve the Lord at this church, most of which are done in obscurity. Uh, and he will reward that service even if no one else ever recognizes it. Just like he will reward James, the son of Alphaeus, that obscure apostle who faithfully served him. There are a few different traditions about him in terms of his death. One says he was killed by being thrown from a pinnacle of the temple and then stoned to death and his head was bashed in with a club. Uh, another says that he was crucified in Egypt. Uh, still another says that he preached in Persia, which is modern day Iran. Uh, but they refused to hear him and crucified him. Uh, so James, the son of Alphaeus, remains obscure even in death. We aren't sure which one, if any of those traditions about him is true. Uh, all we do know is that he was chosen by Jesus and that he served him faithfully as one of his apostles and that one day he will rule over one of the 12 tribes of Israel in God's kingdom. Now, before we move to the next guy, let me pause. Are there any questions or comments? Yes, Gary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Frank, I saw when I was making a couple comments, you were nodding your head in strong agreement about something. Yeah. I get very disappointed. I, I don't attend because of that. I'm just tired of uh, Christian movie stardom type of thing. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who's in the ministry. He talked about a guy that's helped him. He said, this man is probably one of the most faithful pastors he's ever met. He's been in the, at the same church for over 55 years. The church never got over 50. Mm. This man has remained faithful for 55 years. I look up to that. Yeah. But you, you, nobody's ever heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... Yes, Tim? What's the connection with the uh, book, Let Us Now Pray as Famous Men? With, uh, I was just, I, my intro to, uh, he's not a famous guy. But I mean, during the Depression, the people. Oh, I don't know, you'd have to go research it. Okay. <laughs> well, the next guy in the third grouping is Thaddeus. Uh, some less reliable manuscripts, meaning that they were copies from several hundred years after the originals, say, Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Uh, and since those manuscripts are part of the underlying manus uh, manuscript sources of the King James Version, that's what you find in the King James Version and the New King James Version. Uh, but the older and better manuscripts just say Thaddeus. And so uh, all of the other Bible translations simply have him listed as Thaddeus. Uh, but if you look at in Luke 6.16 and Acts 1.13, you find he had another name. 
and that was Judas, the son of James. Uh, and in Mark, I, I'm sorry, in John 14, 22, he's referred to as Judas, not Iscariot, uh, by John to make sure that the readers understood he's not the same person as the betrayer. Judas was a very common name. In fact, there are six men found in the New Testament with that name. Uh, in addition to this guy, there was also Judas Iscariot, of course, uh, Judas, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, Judas, Paul's host in Damascus, uh, after he's blinded on the road while going there. Uh, there was Judas called Barsabbas, who was a leading Christian in Jerusalem, who went with Paul, Barnabas, and Silas to Antioch, and Judas of Galilee, who was a revolutionary leader mentioned in Acts 5.37. Uh, it's the, the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah, uh, which means the praise of Yahweh, or he will be praised. Uh, most likely, Judas was his given name because the name Thaddeus is a fascinating nickname. Uh, it means breast child, uh, which is a Hebrew colloquialism for the baby of the family. Uh, the last child that his mother nursed. Uh, and so it likely reflects the fact that Thaddeus was the baby of his family. Uh, that was the breast child, the, the last baby who was especially cherished by his mother. It wouldn't matter if he was six foot five and weighed 250 pounds. He was, if he was the youngest child, he would always be his mother's baby, her breast child. Um, and apparently that nickname became so attached to him that he was called by that, even in adulthood, by those who were close to him, such as the other uh, apostles. Now, he has been put forth as the author of the little book of Jude in the New Testament. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Uh, you see, the, the name Jude is a shortened version of the name Judas. However, there are significant problems with the idea that Judas was the apostle who wrote it, uh, and so most evangelical Protestant scholars agree that he was not the author. Uh, for example, in Jude 1, uh, the author clearly identifies himself as a brother of James. Uh, the apostle Judas was a son of James, not his brother. Um, the only Judas in the New Testament who had a brother named James was one of Jesus' half-brothers. Uh, uh, further, if Judas, the son of James, was the author, he would have identified himself as an apostle, which, since he was one, but he didn't. Uh, however, the writer of Jude distinguishes himself from the apostles in verse 17 of his epistle. And so the author of Jude, like the author of the book of James, was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, ironically, the man who wrote the sharpest condemnation of apostates found anywhere in Scripture shares the same name as the most, most notorious of all apostates, uh, Judas Iscariot, uh, which may explain why all modern translations use Jude instead of Judas uh, to name that epistle. Uh, my point is simply that the apostle Judas, the son of James, is not the author of the book of Jude. So we don't hear very much about him, but we do hear from him one time in Scripture. And he asked Jesus an important question. It's found in John 14. It was the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night before his trial. 
And Jesus says in verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now that's a very important statement by Jesus. He is saying, I can tell who loves me because they obey me. You may claim to love God. You may claim to love Christ. But if you don't obey, that claim is a lie. It is only those who obey my commandments who love me, and thus they will be loved by God the Father. Now, their obedience is not the cause of their salvation, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20. But rather, their obedience is the inevitable result of their salvation. Obedience flowing from a heart transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is the mark of the person who truly loves Jesus Christ. And such obedient love is the outworking of the love that the Holy Spirit pours into the redeemed heart at salvation. And so the believer's faith and submission to and love for Jesus is demonstrated by his obedience to Christ's commands. And then notice the rest of Jesus' statement there. He said, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That too is an incredibly important statement. God can only be disclosed to a heart that loves him. That's the reason people in the world don't know God. That's the reason they can't perceive the truth, because they don't love God. There has to be a love towards God, a willingness to obey, and then God is revealed to them. Here's the sum of it. God is only revealed to a loving heart. That's all. Only those who love him, to him, to the, those he has disclosed. Now, I'm sure that all the disciples were dumbfounded at this point, but only Thaddeus speaks up in verse 22. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Here is one of, and, and in there you see that little explanatory note. John does that throughout his gospel. He sticks in these little explanatory notes to help his readers understand. And so he's the one that adds in that, not Iscariot, Judas, not Iscariot. Um, he doesn't want his readers getting confused thinking that Judas Iscariot, who already left to betray Christ, has come back into the room, so he clarifies that this is the other guy named Judas in the group. And what he asks is, Lord, you're saying that only those who love you are going to see you and know you, and you will be disclosed only to those who love you. How can you disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, what does he mean by that question? Well, he is thinking of Jesus' disclosure of himself as an outward visible one. When he became one of the 12, he was like so many of the others, thinking of an earthly kingdom, an earthly rule with the overthrow of Rome, with great expectations of establishing the earthly kingdom. And so he's asking Jesus, how could you possibly fulfill the messianic hope? Uh, how could you possibly set up the kingdom on earth? How could you possibly reign on the throne of David? How could you possibly demonstrate who you are, and yet the world will not see it? How could it be done in such a way they won't see? And there may be another illusion in his question. He may also be asking Jesus, 
Why would you think of revealing yourself only to us? I mean, we're just a motley group of nobodies. If you're the Messiah and this is the moment, why would you only show yourself to us? So Thaddeus' question is a good question. Why won't everybody see you? I mean, it's time for the kingdom. Let's get it on. Let's go for it, Lord. The whole world needs to know. Why do you just want to show us? But you see, he didn't understand. And so Jesus says in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He says, My point, Judas, is that the only people who perceive me are the ones who love me, and when that is true about that person, then we, that is the Holy Spirit, will come live in him. And verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, the one who doesn't love me doesn't know what I'm talking about and doesn't know it came from God. Jesus' point is that disclosure is limited to reception. It's like Jim Williams' ham radio system. Jim can talk on his ham radio and the signal goes out, sometimes all around the world. But unless someone else has a ham radio tuned to the same signal, the right signal, they can't receive it. Henry David Thoreau once observed that it takes two people to speak the truth, the one who says it and the one who hears it. That's true. Those who will not listen to the gospel cannot hear it, no matter how clearly and how forcefully it is proclaimed. Jesus was God incarnate, and yet John 1, 10, and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. John 3.19 you see, their receivers aren't tuned. They're not even turned on, much less tuned to the right station. And so Jesus is saying, I only reveal myself to people who receive. You know, I'm glad that Thaddeus asked that question because Jesus' answer is so significant to know. I'm so glad Jesus got to answer that. It's only those who have the Spirit of God uh, who the Spirit of God opens their spiritual eyes so that they can see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who will receive him and love him and then Jesus will love them and disclose himself to them and send his Spirit to abide in them. So that was an insightful question. Thaddeus was listening carefully to the Lord and so his question reflects a typical Jewish view of the kingdom that it was an earthly, literal, real kingdom. That's exactly what the Jews believed, and he couldn't figure out how you could bring it without everyone knowing it. And his question reflects, also reflects humility on his part. He's asking, why would you tell it to us and not the whole world? Why would you limit it to just us? So you see there's some characteristics of Judas Thaddeus that are admirable. You know, if you tore out several pages from the book of Romans out of your Bible, and threw them on the street. You could expect many different reactions to those who saw it. I mean, a dog would come by, sniff it, and go on its way. A street cleaner would come along, pick it up, and throw it in the trash. 
uh, materialistic, greedy people might pick it up hoping that it would be a valuable document such as the title of some property or something of that nature. An English teacher might pick it up admire the literary structure and the argument of the writer. But a spiritually minded believer who picks it up and read it would have his soul blessed because it's the word of God. The content of the paper would be the same for all of those people, for everyone that came in contact with it. But its meaning and value can only be understood by a person receptive to its godly truth. That's how it is in the world too. Only those who, whose hearts are purified by love and walk in obedience will know the disclosure of Jesus Christ and God the Father in their lives by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. They're the only ones who can perceive Christ's truth, beauty, and glory. And Thaddeus was such a person. By the way, early church tradition tells us that Thaddeus was especially tremendously gifted with the power of God to heal the sick. You know that the apostles were carried on with healing the gifts, the spiritual gifts like that. And uh, a certain king in Syria by the name of Abgar, who was very ill, heard about him. And he called for Thaddeus to come and heal him. And on the way, he healed hundreds of other people throughout Syria. And when he finally reached the king, he healed the king and presented the gospel to him. And the legend says that the king became a Christian but that threw the government into such chaos that an apostate nephew of the king seized Thaddeus and had him bludgeoned to death with a club. And if you ever pick up a church history book about the apostles, you will find that each one of them has a symbol. And the symbol for Thaddeus is a big club. Um, but he was faithful to the Lord to the end. So, again, I'll pause. Any questions or comments regarding Thaddeus. Okay. The third name in this last group of the disciples is Simon the Zealot. If you're still using an old King James Version, you'll see that it says Simon the Canaanite. Uh, that was based on a mistranslation of the word Kananas, Kananias, Kananias. Uh, but that word is derived from the Jewish word kana, uh, which means to be jealous or to be zealous. And since both Matthew and Mark were Jews, they used uh, kananias. Uh, but Luke, being a highly educated Gentile, uh, uses the Greek word zelotes, um, which means the same thing. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words mean zealot or nationalist. Uh, the term was often used to refer to a political group known as the Zealots who hated their Roman oppressors and worked as guerrilla assassins and saboteurs to try to overthrow Rome. Some theologians believe that Simon was called a zealot in the sense that he was very zealous for the law but wasn't a part of the political group. Uh, but many others believe he was most likely a part of the group uh, before becoming a follower of Christ. I, I believe that that idea makes the most sense. Uh, as we have discussed before in this class, there were four different dominant groups within the first century Judaism. There were the Pharisees, who were the uh, right-wing fundamentalists, the legalists. 
then there were the Sadducees, who were the left-wing liberals who hated Rome but tried to work within the system. Then there were the Essenes, who were the mystics, the ascetics, the monastics, who were living out in the caves in the Qumran area. And then there were the Zealots. They were the politically oriented group. Uh, they were the domestic terrorists, the guerrillas. Uh, they went around burning and murdering and committing sabotage against any Roman entity or collaborator. Uh, a group within the Zealots was known as the Sicarii. The Sicarii. Uh, they, because they carried what was known as a Sica, uh, which was a, uh, a Sica is a small curved sword or large dagger that they uh, hid under their robes. And they were the assassins. They would sneak up on a Roman soldier who was by himself and suddenly stick their sicca through his side, or they would slit his throat with it. Uh, but the zealots had revolted against the Roman uh, domination. In fact, they were really born out of the Maccabean revolt uh, during the, uh, against their Greek rulers, which took place during the intertestamental period. Uh, this group saw itself as continuing their loyalty to God's law and to Israel, regardless of the fact that their foreign oppressor had changed from Greece to Rome. Uh, their founder was Judas of Galilee, who I said before is mentioned in, in Acts 5.37 uh, as having revolted against the census of, of Quirinius. Uh, but he was killed and his followers were supposedly scattered. However, the fact that they were scattered, they scattered was that they scattered out in these small groups and continued to engage in seditious acts of sabotage and murder throughout the land. The Roman army was constantly fighting against these small bands of zealots. Uh, they would murder here, murder there, plunder, burn anything they could. And as I said, they would attack and kill anyone that they determined to be a Roman collaborator. So tax collectors like Matthew were in particular danger, so the Romans would often guard the tax collectors in order to prevent them from being killed by the zealots, uh, or for that matter, anyone else that they were extorting. Uh, so um, the Jewish historian Josephus says that the zealots believed that they were engaged in a holy war against Rome. So they would uh, just loot and burn and plunder and kill. It didn't matter if in the process they, they had to kill a few Jews. Uh, in their minds, those Jews, those Jews were not as loyal to the law as they were, so their deaths were their own fault. Uh, it's much like the same attitude that you see today in the terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Uh, they blow up and kill other Muslims because they supposedly aren't as loyal to the Islamic law as their group is. Uh, and that's the, that was the same mentality of the zealots. Uh, and even after the Lord's death and ascension back to heaven, the zealots grew in power and in their revolt against Rome. In fact, in one case, they, for those of you who've been to Israel, you may remember that at Masada, there's down at the base of the, the uh, fort, where the fortress is up on top of the mountain, down at the base there was a huge area where the Roman garrison was at. And uh, at one point, the zealots captured that and slaughtered all 700 troops that were there. And that action, as well as the seizure of the Fortress Antonio in Jerusalem, uh, were largely the reasons why Titus Vespasian led the Roman 
army into Israel in 66 AD. And by the time the war was over, Josephus says that 1.1 million Jews were killed in Judea, 100,000 in Galilee, and 97,000 were enslaved. However, because Josephus is known to exaggerate numbers quite a bit, uh, uh, other historians estimate that there were about 350,000 Jews killed in the war. Uh, regardless of who is correct, even if it's that lower number of 350,000, realize that's equivalent to the entire population of North Pinellas County from Clearwater to Tarpon Springs. Um, and all of that came about because of the zealots. Now, as many of you know, the final conclusion of the whole mess took place at Masada. Uh, some of you have been there. It was one of the highlights of my trip to Israel. Uh, the zealots were in that fortress high up on the mountain, which they thought was impenetrable. But the Romans were so determined to take it, they built this huge siege work up to the side of the mountain and built tall towers on top of that that they were going to use to invade Masada. And the zealots leader, Eleazar, saw that their cause was lost, so he summoned the people together. He gave a firebrand of a speech in which he urged them to slaughter their own wives and children and then commit suicide. And they all took him at his word, and they tenderly embraced their wives, kissed their children, and then began killing them all. 960 of them died. Only two women and five children escaped by hiding in a cave. Um, and back in the 1980s, Hollywood made a movie that sort of glamorized the events of Masada. But you have to understand, the zealots were the, not the normal Jewish people. Uh, they were political terrorists, and they preferred to kill their families and themselves before they would let a Roman take their lives. And that's how deep their hatred was. And folks, that's the group of which Simon was a member. Now, admittedly, at the time he was a member, the group was not as large. And it wasn't as well organized as it became 30 years later. But he was a terrorist engaged in guerrilla warfare. For a man like Simon to attach himself to them, he must have been a man with tremendous passion and a tremendous capacity for zeal. And you can imagine that his presence must have caused some fear in Matthew's heart. Um, after all, prior to the transformation brought about by Jesus working in S Simon's heart, he would have killed Matthew if he'd had the opportunity. I think Simon must have been a fireball when it came to the work of the Lord. He, he found a better leader and a greater cause. But notice where he's always listed. He's always listed right next to Judas Iscariot. Uh, they probably went out into ministry together. Uh, but Simon truly believed and was transformed. Judas was not. Simon became Christ's man. Think about how wonderful it must have been, particularly after the coming of the Holy Spirit, for him to sit down in fellowship with Matthew. Uh, it reminds me of my friendship with a man named Eric Holmquist. He's a fellow I arrested when he was 15 or 16 years old. Uh, he didn't learn from that experience. Uh, he rejected Christ he, and God. He became a Satan worshiper. Uh, a few years later, he kept committing crimes and he ended up in prison where he heard the true gospel, and God mar marvelously transformed him. And after getting out of prison, he returned to this church, and he and I became good friends. And he now lives over in Tampa, attends an excellent church there. We remain good friends. Uh, I know Tim knows him. Um, and it's all because of Jesus Christ, who took Eric's heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh that loves Jesus. 
and he transformed my heart to love a guy who I saw as a worthless, hopeless cause who couldn't be trusted. Eric and I are like Simon and Matthew, enemies before Christ, uh, before Christ and brothers in Christ now. So the Lord uses all kinds of unqualified people, doesn't he? He can use you and me as unqualified as we may be. Uh, he doesn't care what your politics are, so long as you don't allow your politics to become a point of your theology. What do I mean by that? I mean that we should never allow our political views to in any way impact our gospel presentation nor who we share the gospel with. We need to be careful not to be so politically focused that the people with whom we're trying to share the gospel begin to think that our gospel is a part of our conservatism. Although many of the positions which scripture teaches are clearly conservative positions in our society, we must remember that they aren't conservative because they're political issues. They are sin issues. Abortion is not wrong because it's a political matter. It is wrong because it is sin. Homosexuality and transgenderism are not merely a matter of a different political viewpoint. They are sins which God considers to be abominable. Those are obviously positions which don't accord with the liberal philosophy of many in our culture, but we must not become so politically focused that people mistake the gospel for a political ideology. That's one reason why I never share my political views within a ministry context. Uh, I don't want anyone listening to me to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is just another conservative political viewpoint. Be willing to die for the truth of the word and the gospel, not your political views. When your political views are founded on the word of God, you're on solid ground. But even then, make sure that those you share with know that you hold to what you hold to, not because of your political ideology, but because that's what the word of God says and teaches. In other words, if you have an unbeliever who says, well, why do you believe that Abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism are wrong. You don't say because I'm a Republican. You say because I'm a Christian who believes what the Word of God, the Bible, teaches. Jesus took Matthew, who was a collaborator with the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot, a man who fought the Roman government, and he taught them that the issue isn't one's politics but rather it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And both of them went all the way to the point of death for that truth, not for their past political viewpoints. What became of Simon the Zealot? Well, like the other apostles, he died a martyr's death. Tradition says he ministered in Jordan, but instead of sticking around close to Israel, his heart for the lost took him down to Egypt, across North Africa, and then crossed over into Europe, and eventually going all the way to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, Britain. He went there in 44 AD, shortly after the Romans conquered Britain and remained there, and he remained there ministering for 17 years until he was crucified there in 61 AD. Uh, his body was then sewn in half. So the symbol given to him in early Christian artwork is that of a Saul. Um, and that brings us to the end of, of Simon the Zealot. Before we stop, any comments or questions regarding 
that or anything else I propounded. Yes? About Simon Zealot, until now, I've heard it taught, not here, but elsewhere, that he was called Simon Zealot because he was zealous for Christ. Yes, yeah, some people believe that. Uh, some people say that. But it is more likely that he was part of that group because they were, they were the four dominant group. There were those four dominant groups and they were one of the four. So why would you identify him that way? You know, so yes, he was zealous for Christ, but he was had been a part of that group. Yes, Frank? Right. If anybody would have had that, it would have been Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that leaves us with one last guy. And we'll get to him next week. All right, Frank, close us with prayer, please.